Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello and welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for supporting us. To those of you who give regularly or who have subscribed or given us ratings, we appreciate all that. And I thought I'd read a couple of reviews from Apple Podcasts since some of you are kind enough to give reviews. Um, so we've got this one star review uh, from, so one out of five, you know, it's better than I guess zero out of five uh, from Dashing Cow. This podcast is absolutely great. Inspires me to read a lot more scholarly books on scripture. Their combos are very thought provoking. And in my opinion, they're hilarious. So uh, we thank you for that one star uh, review. And here's another review we have here. The title of the review is great, except one episode. Please don't have that awful narcissistic pseudo intellectual patronizing Irvine Shablatsim on again, quite the worst guest you've ever had in an otherwise excellent podcast. We appreciate that honest feedback and you too could leave a review on Apple podcasts. Uh, but also in this holiday season, you know, this is the time to get creative. And there are many ways that you can go about sharing the word about OnScript. Let me just mention a few in passing here. The first one has to do with kids. Uh, so, you know, one of the problems with uh, the holidays uh, is that uh, kids get too many gifts. And so one option is to uh, wrap a box for a, a child and give the child that box. And inside, uh, you could leave a note that says, I've made a donation to OnScript in lieu of a gift. Uh, to you because you have too many toys uh, and you could then s give money to onscript.study forward slash donate uh, instead of buying a kid another gift that they don't need another option around the holidays a lot of people go out to a bar pub and there's an open mic and uh, you could walk right up to the front say i've got a, a song to sing and proceed to uh, improv a, a song that's that's uh, disguised advertisement for OnScript. So those are just a couple of the ways that, that you can share the word. And uh, we really appreciate all your efforts in those directions. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our episode for this week. I'm really excited about this interview with Malka Simkovich about her book, Discovering Second Temple Literature. It's a fantastic book, and I really enjoyed the discussion with her and hope you enjoy it as well. Our guest today is Dr. Malka Simkovich, who is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies at Catholic Theological Union. She's the director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at CTU. She's the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, published in 2016. And the book will be focused on today, Discovering Second Temple Literature, The Scriptures and Stories That Shaped Early Judaism, published by Jewish Publication Society in 2018. Malka, welcome to OnScript. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed reading your book, um, uh, Discovering Second Temple Literature. And I think it's a fantastic overview, And uh, but it's not just an overview. Uh, it has a lot of interesting stories in it, and I think it keeps the, the reader engaged throughout. So I really appreciate that. Uh, but before we get to talking about and discussing that book, I'm wondering if you could give our listeners a sense of your 
background, some of the formative experiences that led you to the study of Second Temple literature. Yeah, absolutely, Matt. And thank you again for having me today. The Second Temple period is really misunderstood, I think, by both Jews and Christians. And as someone who was raised in an Orthodox Jewish community, I was definitely among those who had a profound misunderstanding of this period. I was brought up to think of it as kind of a bridge. Of course, in the Jewish tradition, there's only one testament. We call it the Hebrew Bible. It comes to a close and around the 6th or 5th century BCE, but of course, uh, according to scholars, many of those last uh, layers were produced in as late as the 2nd century BCE. But again, as a child growing up in an Orthodox community, I was basically told the Hebrew Bible comes to an end with the close of exile uh, in around 538 BCE and maybe the decades following it. Uh, in the Persian period, you have stories like Esther, the Book of Chronicles, And then we sort of made this mental jump to the rabbinic period. The temple falls in 70 CE and the rabbis save Judaism, whatever Judaism looked like. We uh, were not really told, but the rabbis show up and they create this normative system of practice that enables Jews all over the world to be part of this cohesive community. Um, And this was the story that I sort of latched onto unquestioningly as a kid and, uh, and, and what that does is it sort of elides six centuries of history. And so I never asked the question as a kid, how do you get from the biblical Israelites and the biblical Judeans to the world of the rabbis, which is so very different? It was not a question, uh, that really sort of entered, uh, into my mind or challenged me. Um, as I started my graduate studies and I began to engage in, um, in the, work of studying early Judaism. I, I was a master student in the Hebrew Bible. So again, Second Temple Judaism as its own discipline was not of interest to me. I was studying Hebrew Bible. But as I began to engage in studying the scriptural texts academically and becoming more aware of how Christians read these texts, it suddenly occurred to me that this period really gets a short shrift in both traditions kind of, again, like a a bridge tradition. But what's interesting to me is that both Jews and Christians apply the same stereotypes to this period. So in, in different ways, both Jews and Christians will say, well, this is a period of decline. It's a period of increasing divisiveness, of sectarianism, of fractureness. So of course, the story ends in two different ways. In the Christian tradition, Jesus shows up and says, okay, well, let's call uh, the ethical teachings of Judaism and the moral values of Judaism. Uh, I think G- Jesus is probably misunderstood as trying to start a new religion. But again, he's imagined as someone who rejects the ritual practices of Judaism. I don't know if that's the case. And of course, for Jews, again, it was the rabbis who said, all right, well, how do we salvage our tradition? Uh, so as a graduate student, again, focusing on the Hebrew Bible, I sort of stumbled into the world of Second Temple Judaism. I wasn't looking for it. But the more that I was trying to clarify how this bridge period works, the more I realized, wait a second, there's actually a huge universe out there that I've never been exposed to in a traditional way in my own faith or even academically. And what is going on in this period that gets us from the world of the biblical Judeans to the world of the rabbis. So it was, um, it was a gap in my education that I wasn't even aware of until my earlier mm. mid twenties. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, I think of a, another stereotype within Christianity, which is that it's referred to as the 400 years of silence. So um, you had the, the closing of the Old Testament and then just silence where the, there were no prophets active, there's no, nothing really happening. So something of a, a holding pattern until Jesus. So that's another stereotype that I think operates. I don't know if there's anything equivalent to that on the Jewish side or not. There absolutely is. First of all, I'm fascinated by that phrase, and I would love for you to tell me if you know what the origin of it is. You don't know. I'm going to have to look yeah, I'm into not sure. that. <laughs> That's fascinating. We have Talmudic statements. Um, and so these would be fourth, fifth, sixth century statements about all the ways in which the second temple was inferior to the first temple. And among the three differences, the, the primary differences is the cessation of prophecy. So I think it's really interesting that you're talking yeah. about 400 years of silence because the rabbis make it very clear that the second temple period is inferior in every way to the period of the first temple. And that, of course, includes the ways in which uh, the people are receiving or not receiving the divine message. Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Like the the idea of the cessation of prophecy, I think, is is what the silence refers to. So there's no prophetic word coming. And so there must not be anything else really happening. Uh, people are simply waiting. Um, but also, as you said, like there's that idea of decline, ossification, like turn toward ritual, you know, all those kinds of stereotypes as well. Ossification is a great period. word. I'm going to have to borrow that one as well. Um, yes, I think. <laughs> and again, you know, we we kind of imagine Christianity and Judaism as being totally opposite in every way, even though they share similar scriptures. But the presumed binary of prophet versus priest is another commonality that you see in in contemporary Jewish and Christian readings, again, deployed uh, differently, but both negatively. In other words, uh, you'll find in a lot of what I would call inferior scholarship inspired by a Christian tradition that you have this these oppositional leadership groups and the prophets are marginalized and they're at the edge of society and they're trying to remember, they're trying to remind the people of their ethical traditions. And then the priests are just clinging to their power at the center of the society. And uh, that power, of course, is cultic, it's ritual, it's devoid of um, ethical content. And so this binary, it's a false binary, but it becomes very powerful in the imagination, uh, especially of Christian writers, but not only, I think you, you do see it um, also in some Jewish traditions as well. And I think it's really problematic. Yeah, for sure. I, one of the things that I find really productive in teaching the prophets is to take those passages where you hear things like, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Or, um, you know, in Isaiah chapter one, where God says, I don't want your assemblies, your religious, your gatherings, your sacrifices, and so on, and talk about, well, what are those texts saying? Because I think sometimes it's easy to position the prophets as revolutionaries who were wanting to overturn the entire cultic system. And and that kind of reinforces that that sharp contrast. And I don't think that's what those texts are saying at all, but it's it it's you could see how you could get there if you just take those texts in isolation. Oh, absolutely. And I think we often forget that 
many of those prophetic figures who are highlighting the importance of ethical behavior are working within the court and not against the court. So the kings had their own prophets and these prophets worked with the government in the government. They weren't wandering the desert. I mean, you have the famous case of Jeremiah, who is terribly treated, according to uh, his book, and ends up in Egypt. But you also have court prophets like Isaiah, who has a very intimate relationship with the court governance. Um, and, and there are many like him as well. Now, I always tell my students, I'm less interested in, um, the historical background of the individual prophet than I am in the, in the choices made by the Israelites and Judeans who were reading and receiving these traditions and decided to put them in their scriptures, whatever canonical process that required. In other words, you have Israelites and then you have Judeans who are saying these teachings are so valuable that we are going to treat them as authoritative, as scriptural. Again, you cannot say canonical yet at this early stage. But the point is this. You had to have known if you're living the sixth or fifth or fourth century BC, you had to have known that making these teachings part of your scriptural tradition made you extraordinarily vulnerable to outsiders and to outsider criticism. Because if you're saying, here's a text that calls me, <laughs> that, that calls me out for mistreating the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable and the poor. And I'm going to take this text and I'm going to put it into my scriptural tradition, even though I know that outsiders will potentially, and they did potentially say, you see, even your own scriptures condemn you. Even your own God is angry at you. Even your own prophets are, pardon me, pissed off at you. That's exactly what happens. It happens with the Greeks and the Romans. And of course, the Christians, they say, look at your own scriptures. They reject you. Now, the Jews would say, no, no, no. We chose to preserve these texts because they remind us of the values that lie at the very core of who we are. We wouldn't have preserved them if they weren't important to us. But the vulnerability that the preservation of these texts make the Jews by the early common era is extraordinary. And I don't think, I'm not a scholar of the Quran, but I don't think that the early Christian tradition and the New Testament specifically opens up the early Jesus community to criticism in the same way that the prophetic scriptures do for the Jews. But Jews read these texts and they say, yeah, these are like, our values. Yeah. yeah, it's like calling witnesses against yourself uh, in many ways. It is a very risky and often self-indicting endeavor because they, they call you to a pretty high standard. Exactly right. Yeah. So just for clarity's sake, you know, your book is called Discovering Second Temple Literature. What is Second Temple Literature? Yeah, well, that's an incredible... <laughs> it's it's an incredible collection because it's... um kind of amorphous and fluid and ever expanding. So when we talk about Second Temple literature, we're talking about five collections, maybe even more. Uh, you have the very, very famous Dead Sea Scrolls. And many people, when they think about the dead, the Second Temple, oof, they think about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I actually, if anyone has heard me on another podcast, they would know. I don't like the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that they get too much FaceTime. <laughs> They're overrepresented. Like enough. You've gotten your time, Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, like you need to go. Great job. You were really interesting. You got people into the period. Like, see you later. The Dead Sea Scrolls represent the <laughs> writings of a hundred people, 150 people. They're ultra, ultra sectarian. It's, they don't even represent a sect. They represent like an extreme subset of a sect. Um, and so when you think about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you're thinking like, okay, well, it must be that all Jews were retreating the wilderness and living these like highly, um, 
ascetic lives and, you know, just... And all Jews were men, apparently. <laughs> right. And all Jews were men uh, with like crazy purity laws. Um, so that's the Dead Sea Scrolls. So now you know how I feel about them. Um, you also, of course, have the New Testament, which um, includes a lot of what I would call Second Temple Jewish literature. You have the writings of the great historian Josephus, who was writing technically after the Second Temple period, uh, but very much a second temple figure. He's born before the temple falls um, and he's engaging with Reala, Realia, I think, that uh, is very sort of specific to the first century. Uh, you have the writings of Philo of Alexandria. Again, hugely important thinker, but not necessarily representative of your average Jew in Alexandria. Uh, it's like saying, I'm going to take... um uh like St- Stephen Hawking or like I'm going to take the writings of like who's like a very famous I don't know like leading intellectual <laughs> um in America uh I'm like drawing a blank but yeah but not well I mean you could go to Canada and say Jordan Peterson oh. <laughs> and say like you know he's sort of representative of North American thought I think you're the first person to make an analog between Philo of Alexandria and Jordan Peterson but I wonder if you'll be the last um, so you have, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, New Testament, Philo Josephus, you have the Apocrypha, which is about 15 texts. And I say about because you have different collections of scriptural texts that are being produced in early Christian circles and in the Catholic Church. These texts known as the Apocrypha, they're appended to the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, and, and they're considered canonical. Uh, but then you have my most favorite collection of Second Temple texts, and that's the Pseudepigrapha. The Pseudepigrapha is not really a collection at all. It's an 18th century word invented by a German, a Protestant scholar named Johann Fabricius. Johann Fabricius says, I'm going to go around to ancient libraries and monasteries, and I'm going to collect whatever ancient text I can that somehow buttress my own sense of, you know, Christian authenticity. And so he's collecting all these texts. The pseudepigrapha means falsely attributed writings because many of these texts had headers that were added to them at some point that attributed them to often biblical figures. Um, and these texts, they don't really have any inherent relationship with one another. So you can go onto Amazon. You can search the Old Testament pseudepigrapha, get a huge two-volume set edited by James Charlesworth. You have hundreds or at least dozens of documents that are in this two-volume set. These documents are thought by scholars to have been produced by pious Jews in the late Second Temple period or up to the 4th century. But they have nothing to do with each other. They're just stuff that Johann Fabricius found and that later scholars after him found and date to the second temple period and stick into this collection called pseudepigrapha you have novellas you have prayers you have biblical interpretations you have all kinds of texts again they're not inherently related to one another some of them were written in aramaic some in greek some were written in antioch rome alexandria judea so it's ridiculous that this is even considered a collection because that implies cohesiveness and there is none. Mm, but yet it's your favorite. It's my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> why Why yeah. is it your favorite? Well, I think that it's the very diversity and the experimentalism and the playfulness and the surprise factor in some of these texts that you're like, wait, what? Really? Jews were writing this? Um, and so when you put some of these texts into conversation with one another, you get a sense of the incredible liberalism and variety that Jews were, um, like I said, experimenting with. And again, these are not assimilated Jews. These are not Jews who have just sort of thrown their ancestral tradition to the wind 
and are now trying to be good Hellenists. If that were the case, they would not be citing their scriptures. They wouldn't be playing with biblical stories. They wouldn't be talking about the patriarchs, uh, but they are. They're doing all those things. And most of these Jewish writers seem to have been practicing what we call common Judaism. So uh, that yeah, would, that's great. I'd yeah. like. I was wondering about common Judaism, and I'm wondering if you could just talk about what that idea is and what's at stake in that discussion. Oh yes, this is a huge question, and the term was popularized by a great scholar who passed away just a couple of weeks ago, E.P. Sanders. Common Judaism is uh, it's a polemical idea. I support it. It's a polemical idea against the notion that Judaism was primarily sectarian, divisive, fractured, falling apart in the Second Temple period. And what it argues is that the vast majority of Jews were part of a cohesive global community that practiced what I call the big three, the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice. And that would have been the Sabbath, dietary law, and circumcision. And then on top of that, they were coming together regularly to read their scriptures. And the synagogue, by the way, is not something that the rabbis invent in 70 CE, the day after the temple falls. It's concurrent with the second temple period. So by the time the second temple falls, these communities all over the world have mechanisms by which they can survive. They're already going to the synagogue. The synagogue is a place of interpretation. We know that from the New Testament. Jesus goes to the synagogue. That's where he produces innovative homilies. And so the Jews know this format. They're, they're gathering the synagogue. They're reading the scriptures. They're interpreting them and they're practicing, you know, again, Sabbath. And I would maybe add holidays to that circumcision, dietary law. And these things were not easy to keep. They got a lot of negative. Uh, feedback from Greeks and Romans who felt that by keeping these laws, Jews were making themselves um, insular and not good team players and misanthropic and not really participating in public life the way that they should. Um, and, you know, if you look at just demographically what's happening in all these communities, Jews are spread all over the world. There are up to a million Jews in Egypt. 99.99% of these Jews are not in a sect. Okay, so I guess the opposite view would be like, if you were a Jewish person, you're you're going to be categorized as either, uh, let's say, a zealot, a Sadducee, a Pharisee. You're going to fall in, or, and or a follower of one of those groups, and and totally at odds with one another. So the idea of common Judaism, then how how does that jive with like the relationship, say, between the Pharisees and and the Jewish people more generally? This is a good question. Josephus gives us numbers. We don't, we don't necessarily trust Josephus when it comes to numbers. Uh, he is known to inflate his numbers, but it's important to know that if he is saying 6,000 Pharisees were around in the first century, 4,000 Sadducees, 3,000 Essenes, you're talking a tiny, tiny percentage of the population. If let's say a conservative estimate is six, 700,000 Jews in Judea, it's again, it's a tiny percentage. It doesn't mean that these figures did not have significant, impactful influence on the broader population of Jewry. And so Josephus says in a kind of complaining tone, the Pharisees have a lot of power over the broader Jewish population. People listen to them. They're credited with being the inheritors and interpreters and transmitters of a tradition that gives them a kind of um, authority or at least, you know, they claim a kind of authority, uh, but it does have a sway over the people. And this has poli political ramifications, right? 
Who should the people support? What should their relationship be with the Roman Empire? All these political questions were interacting with these social, religious, of course, these are terrible words, right? Because religion, like, what did that even mean in the ancient world? But you understand everything is interlocking. Um, and so, and I think another thing that people misunderstand is when we're talking about a sect, what does that even mean? How are we defining that? When we think of a sect today, often we think of, you know, people um, in bunkers or hiding out, a sort of David Koresh situation where, um, you know, there's a total rejection of the outside world. That, and again, I don't think the Dead Sea Scrolls help us sort of undermine that stereotype. But the fact is, is that members of these communities were interacting. Their kids were marrying each other. They were eating at each other's tables. Uh, they were debating halakha, Jewish law. And so whatever it meant to be a sect, I think that even just that word gets us into trouble because they were, um, they had so many ties with each other. And even at Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls collection, we have some texts that could be seen to be Sadducean aligned and some that are Pharisee aligned, right? So even in that community, it wasn't like they had to choose one or the other. Well, that's se. an interesting question. I've never seen a scholar say that there were both Essenes and Sadducees living at Qumran, but it's true that the literature that they preserved had different origins. Oh yeah, absolutely. So for example, like the Book of Jubilees was not produced in Qumran, it's very, very unlikely. Uh, it's imported into the community. It seems to be sectarian. It advocates for a solar calendar, um, but it doesn't necessarily, again, seem to be a scene, although most scholars believe that the community at Qumran was a scene. Now you find 15 copies of Jubilees at the library. So it was extraordinarily popular for this community. Um, but how do they view it? What were its origins? We don't know. So absolutely, there's... Um, overlap. It's not like they're all reading distinct and different sets of texts. Let's talk about this literature and and some of the places where it was found. So we've already talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls briefly. Maybe we'll come back to that. But you also have uh, sections on the Cairo Geniza and St. Catherine's Monastery. What What are these places and why are they significant? What's incredible is that the discoveries of ancient texts in places like the Cairo Geniza, St. Catharines, Mount Athos, they all happen pretty recently in the late 19th century. Um, unfortunately, you have an attitude, a kind of imperialist attitude at this time, of colonizing attitude of exploring what was called the Orient. I, obviously, it's not a, a word that um, is uh, not without its problems, but this is how it was viewed. And very wealthy uh, explorers and intellectuals and academics would go to various places and uh, just kind of take for themselves what they wanted. Um, and so you have the spirit of um, spirit of colonialism that is propelling these people yeah. to the east and the south. Um, the Cairo Geniza was known among Jews who lived in Egypt for centuries, there always has been a Jewish community in Egypt. And a Geniza is a place where Jews place holy texts. They don't throw out documents with God's name. Now, what's amazing about this Geniza, this storehouse, uh, was actually an upper attic room of the Ben Ezra synagogue in a Jewish neighborhood called Fustat of Cairo. And uh, this room was um, 
starting from the eighth or ninth century was designated as a place where Jews could put their holy texts. But what's interesting about that particular community is that they weren't just putting documents that had God's name in this room. They were putting documents that simply had Hebrew in this room because they viewed Hebrew as inherently a sacred language. And so when scholars like Salman Schechter, uh, the Romanian scholar who was working at Cambridge in 1896, when he finally comes upon this room of 250,000 documents that had been collected for 1200 years, uh, the level of, um, again, diversity, but not just chronological diversity, but also diversity in content is unlike anything that's ever been discovered. And I always say that in terms of just significance and impact to our understanding of Jewish history, the Cairo Geniza far eclipses the Dead Sea Scrolls. Absolutely. You have, again, quarter million fragments or complete documents that span a thousand years. And, and the whole story. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you. It sounds like you need to open another Shrine of the Book Museum in a Shrine of the Geniza Museum in Israel. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Yeah, they're mostly not, you know, they're mostly not uh, in Israel. Well, that's exactly the controversy is he basically embar- embarks on a very aggressive campaign to get all this stuff to Cambridge. Um, and he's in competition with other scholars uh, at Oxford who are trying to do the same thing. And of course, this brings us to issues that today we're much more sensitive about, which is ownership and rightful, uh, you know, r- r- like, does anyone own these texts? And if so, would it really be a scholar working in Cambridge? Um, but to his credit, he had enormous reverence for the texts, maybe not the community that was connected with them. Um, and he takes care of them. Uh, when they're brought back, um, he begins basically, uh, you know, decades long project to publish and publicize these, these documents. And, and what are some of the examples of significant texts from the Cairo Geniza? Maybe you could also touch on St. Catherine's Monastery as well. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that, and this is kind of a historical mystery that I don't think we have the answer to. The Cairo Geniza includes documents that were produced in the Second Temple period. How this happens is really unclear, but it includes documents like what's called the Damascus document, which was found at Qumran. How does something like this happen? How does a document that talks about how life should be structured in this tiny little community of Qumran on the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea that really wasn't around after the first century? How does a copy of that document travel to Egypt and end up in the Geniza. St. Catherine's is a little bit of a different example. Again, you're talking about a very ancient, an ancient monastery in the Sinai desert that is preserving all kinds of documents that today would not be considered part of the Christian canonical tradition, but have religious value. And here you have a similar story as to the story of Salman Schechter discovering the Geniza. I didn't even go into exactly how that happened. Um, but at the heart of both of these stories, you have, and if you read my book, you'll get more of this. You have uh, just very serendipitous events, including events that um, are galvanized by two women, uh, Margaret Dunlop Gibson and Agnes Smith Lewis, who are identical twin sisters, uh, Scottish, both widowed very young, incredibly wealthy. Who end up like traipsing the world because this stuff interests them. And especially Agnes Smith Lewis, she ends up like she's an autodidact. She ends up teaching herself like six or seven languages. And uh, these are ancient languages, including Greek. 
and she ends up at St. Catherine's. And one of the things that she discovers is an ancient, um, what, one of the oldest Bibles that survive today, uh, that includes the Old Testament and the New Testament. So again, it's all in my book, but you know, so much of these discoveries are serendipitous, which means, you know, accidental. The degree to which someone is looking for an ancient text, you know, might vary, but certainly she did not accept, expect to find a fourth century Bible, uh, the Codex Sinaiticus. Each of the sections that you have in your book on these different places, the Cairo Geniza, the Dead Sea Scrolls, St. Catharines. You also talk about Mount Athos, which I was really blown away that there are 900,000 manuscripts from the monasteries on Mount Athos. Again, like a whole documentary in its own right, filled with intrigue. You know, women aren't allowed there and access to documents is very difficult. So those are fascinating stories. I encourage listeners to go read those sections of the book um, as well. I'm wondering if we could shift gears to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls briefly. I, you know, you've, you've made clear that, you know, you don't want it to eclipse the other places like the Cairo Geniza and so on. But in what ways do you think the Dead Sea Scrolls did revolutionize biblical studies or study of early Judaism? And what are some of the questions about that collection that still puzzles you? That's a great question. I don't know if the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves revolutionized the study of early Judaism, but the first Jewish scholars to work on the scrolls did revolutionize the study of early Judaism, by which I mean that originally these scrolls were studied through the lens of mostly um, French Protestant scholars who, uh, many of them were in the clergy, who were maybe not only Protestant, but just Christian scholars, um, also from the UK. And they were looking at these texts through the lens of a simple question, which is, what do these documents tell us about the world of early Christianity? Which, by the way, is a very legitimate question. I'm not, I'm not trying to delegitimize it, except these documents precede, you know, the rise of Christianity. But still, you could ask the question of, what does this tell us about the context in which Jesus lived? Fine. The problem happens when you start to read the texts themselves through the lens of later emergent Christian ideas. And then you start to retrojack some of those ideas into the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, to call this text a monastic or to call the community who produced uh, this library a monastic community to attribute certain terminology to them that would be more comfortable in a second or third century early Christian setting uh, to try to make connections between this community and John the Baptist. It got to the point where, but even by the early 1980s, there the 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 scrolls that had been discovered up through 1953, that was when the last cave was found, uh, the scroll still had not been examined within the context of Second Temple Judaism, sort of outside of a conversation of uh, early Christian framework. And so you have Jewish, young Jewish scholars like Lauren Schiffman and others in the 80s and 90s who are saying, wait a second, we need to just put the world of early Christianity aside and look at these documents within their early Jewish context. What does it tell us about Judaism? And when you ask that question, you uh, affirm what I said a few minutes ago, which is, even though the library of Qumran represents a tiny portion of the Judean population in the late second temple period, you still find extraordinary creativity, 
liberalism when it comes especially to biblical interpretation. And um, when you put these texts into conversation with later rabbinic literature, you actually find remarkable parallels. Uh, again, in terms of biblical interpretation, in terms of legal practices. And what it does then is it, is it allows us to read later biblical literature and say, wait a second, maybe the rabbis were not inventors the way that we thought they were. Maybe they were inheriting something that was actually quite robust and well-developed in the Second Temple period. You know, you, you've said it represents a tiny minority. What do you think of the idea that this actually represents a larger collection of literature that was stashed in the caves you know, post 70 or, or on the cusp of 70 by, and it represents a sort of broader collection of documents or, or represents wider uh, Judean Judaism. There are theories that this text was deposited by Jews fleeing Jerusalem during the war of 66 to 73 CE, but I don't think that that's academic consensus. And it's really not supported in the sense that we don't have any other similar libraries or, you know, anything comparable that would suggest that Jews were just sort of running from Jerusalem with these highly sectarian documents uh, and depositing them. It also really wouldn't quite work with some of the documents themselves, which do speak out against the Jerusalem leadership and provide explanation as to why the writers do not accept the authority of Jerusalem leadership. So there are problems with that theory and it doesn't represent consensus. Um, but again, you know, the, uh, theories change and trends change. So you have sections in your book as well on various places that are significant for the study of Second Temple Judaism, most notably Jerusalem. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the factors that led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. I don't mean to jump right to its destruction, but it's it's a very important event. And perhaps Josephus's view on that as well. I love talking about Josephus. Just like um, everybody valorizes, not valorizes, but like adores and is fascinated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm like, all right, get over it. I feel the opposite about Josephus. <laughs> Every time I say Josephus, people are like, oh, he's a traitor. If I'm talking to Jews or Christians, they're like, well, you know that you can't trust anything that Josephus ever said. And he was just one big fat liar. Um, people do not like this guy. <laughs> and so my job, even though I did say he inflates his numbers earlier in our conversation, um, I do take it very personally. It is my personal responsibility to tell you that Josephus is not just a big fat liar. Um, and my metaphor that I always use is I would not be able to go on a podcast with you and talk about the president of the United States of America, Kim Kardashian, who was brought up in uh, Madagascar and now is, you know, leading the world ag against a war fighting Canada. Why can't I do that? Because we all live in 2022 and we do have a sense of fact and fiction. Josephus would not have been able to just make up lies to the contemporary audience that was reading him. He was patronized by very powerful and very wealthy Roman leaders, Roman emperors, who would not have been very interested in fiction. Uh, of course, Josephus has his own interpretations and his own polemical interests and his opinions about the Pharisees, which are often quite negative. But Josephus can't just make everything up. 
So we need to right. be a little nicer to Josephus. Yeah. Even if he has, even if he has details, and I can't remember the exact detail, but there was like a, a cow that gave birth to a goat or something <laughs> like that and during the siege of Jerusalem <laughs> in the Jewish War. There's some animal that gives birth to another animal, and I, I can't remember what it is. Uh, but yeah, some, but Jewish some details War. that are, yeah, but some details that are inaccurate don't undermine the whole thing. And 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 I I appreciate him because as someone who didn't grow up in ancient Israel or in Israel of the first century. He speaks to me as an outsider to that and explains things. So very helpful. Absolutely. He's very self-conscious about his Roman audience. Of course, in the 90s CE, he's writing in Rome and he's always walking that tightrope. He gives 10 reasons for the war and five of them are squarely the responsibility of the Jews and five are squarely the responsibility of the Romans. They're not like in a row. You're not going to find like one essay section where he's like, here are the 10 reasons. But you see that he's constantly walking that tightrope. Um, and I think he's very brave to lay some of the responsibility at the feet of the Romans. Another thing that I hear from Jews all the time is like, oh my God, he was a traitor against the Jews. He was a self-hating Jew. He hated the Jews, his own people. I don't know if you know the phrase self-hating Jew, but it's one that the Jews really love to use. Um, but no, but he wouldn't, if he really was that, he wouldn't have taken personal risks to blame Rome for what he blamed Rome for. Now, just real quick, the, the idea of him being a traitor comes from the idea that he defected to the Romans at, you know, at the last minute when he was in a cave and they had made this, he and 15 other soldiers had made a pact to kill each other. They didn't kill themselves until the last person. And then he and the other last dude were like, hey, let's go over to the Romans. So wouldn't you do the yeah, same thing? I just wanted to give that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would. I think I'd be hard, like, to, <laughs> hard to pass up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think I'd be like, well, I think we made our point to the Romans with our self-sacrificing martyrdom. Maybe I'll just, you know, live. Um, but yes, he's he's taken to Rome in shackles by General Vespasian. And it's true that uh, even though I do take Josephus very seriously as a historian, he does insert miracles and he does often imply that he's a prophet and he does insert speeches into the mouths of people who he never met, like at Masada, the famous scene of um, Eliezer telling his, uh, you know, Jewish compatriots to kill themselves. And there's this gorgeous speech that Josephus writes. Josephus was not there, uh, but you know, that's that's kind of like the hagiographical practices of the time is to insert these speeches into the mouths of heroes. So Josephus, yes, of course, he does all of that. And he even tells us that when Vespasian captures him and is bringing him to Rome, he says, oh, Vespasian, I see that you are one day going to become ruler of all Rome. And of course, we know Vespasian becomes emperor um, in 69 CE, but uh, was was Josephus a prophet? Did he really say that? And Vespasian's like, shut up, shut up. You know, because to say anything like that is total treason in the Roman world. You can't, you can't do that. And so he is, uh, Josephus is implying that he has some kind of prophetic vision, but yes, he goes to Rome. Later, he's released and treated very honorably. Um, he tells us at the end of his autobiography. So he has total ambivalence, uh, or maybe that's not the right word, but he doesn't spare the Roman Empire of criticism. Uh, and the same goes for the Jews. Again, he's walking the tightrope. And I should add one more thing, which is that in the middle of the war, he's brought back to Jerusalem as a translator for the Romans. And when the Jews see him on the other side, they are not happy. 
Yeah, this is this is uh, the optics are all wrong here, Josephus. You right, know, being a translator. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think you're right. Like he's 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 walking a really thin line that is not going to make any group happy. And and what is it then that you find compelling about him in all of this? Like, wh- why do you want to rehabilitate his image against his detractors? Well, I think when somebody makes criticism that is not in their best personal interests, it's really compelling to me because there's no personal incentive that Josephus should be bashing the Romans while sitting in a Roman villa <laughs> at the end of his life. You know, like there's no more reason for him to take those risks. And yet he does. I just find his writing um, and his deep conviction in the integrity of the Jewish religion to be really compelling. Josephus produces the first systematic defense of the Jewish religion ever to have been written. The genre does not exist. He invents it. And that's called Against Appion. And in Against Appion, he lists every horrible thing that people are saying about Jews. By the way, a lot of it has to do with disproportionate Jewish power. So there's some contemporary resonances. Um, and he, he just takes them down one by one. And he is so, um, he, he's so methodical and yet passionate in his determination to take these people on. It's emotionally exhausting, uh, just reading this text. Um, and yet he does it. So I, I have extraordinary sympathy for Josephus. And that does not mean that every single word he said is perfectly true, but that there's a lot of historical value in his writing. It seems like Philo and Josephus in their own ways are uh, advocating for the Jewish people in a broader context. So what are some of the ways that that Philo also maybe engages in similar, but, you know, within a different genre, but similar activities? Yeah, absolutely. So Philo is also very, I think, underappreciated, especially in the Jewish tradition, because he's not cited in rabbinic literature. And so he sort of does not make it into, you know, this canonical or authoritative tradition. Uh, and often he's misunderstood as an assimilated Jew. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Philo lived approximately from 20 BCE to 50 CE. Again, in Alexandria, he has an extraordinarily elite education in Alexandria. He's from a very well-known family. He has in-laws who are married into the Roman, um, the, 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 the Judean royal family and have Roman, um, connections as well. I'm trying to remember, is it his brother or his brother-in-law, Tiberius, uh, who is, um, I think it's a brother, uh, who was, a an official for the Roman, the Roman Empire and his son marries one of the Judean princesses. And so he comes from a very elite family. Um, Philo, on the one hand, wants to argue for the integrity, the philosophical integrity of the Jewish religion to uh, Roman readers who would have dismissed Judaism as being sort of barbaric and antiquated and again, misanthropic. And he argues for the integrity, but when it's ever a choice between the Roman culture or Greek philosophy on the one hand and Judaism, Father will always come down on the side of Judaism and say, not only is it equal, but it's in fact superior to the intellectual history um, and values uh, offered by Greek philosophy. And so many times he's quite explicit that the teachings of Judaism and the Torah specifically is even superior. Uh, and again, his writings are very, very sensitive to anti-Jewish literature that's being produced at the time, accusing the Jews of not being good team players. Yeah. And what are some of those tensions then within the Roman Empire that they're responding to? Like, what are the issues at play for Jews living in the diaspora? <sighs> yeah, it's a great, So it doesn't yeah, all come question. down to uh, the uh, re- rebellion 
prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, right. So first of all, Jews do, as a Jew, I will admit it, I think that at this time, the disproportionate political power that Jews had would have been very striking. In other words, and again, Josephus is very helpful in this regard, giving us the details. Uh, Cleopatra II in the late 2nd century BCE has uh, generals who are Jewish who are advising her. In fact, sometimes they're saying, don't invade Judea. That's not in the best interests of your Jewish allies in Egypt. And if you invade Judea, guess what's going to happen to your hundred, couple hundred thousand Jews in Egypt who are supporting you against your brother, Fiscon. We're not going to support you anymore. And so they're kind of holding their alliances over her in ways that are quite public and get a lot of criticism. Uh, And so the Jews in Egypt are in this very uncomfortable in-between situation where they do want to show loyalty to their uh, kin in Judea, this new and very vulnerable Hasmonean kingdom that just shows up in 164 BC. They want to show support for this kingdom and its welfare, but they also want to show their Greek neighbors in Egypt that they are good Greeks. And the Jews are being accused, again, of Being misanthropic, it's a Greek word, misanthropia, means anti-people. There's no distinction in the ancient world between public life and public, uh, and private life and between, um, private religious life that we think of today and, and the communal life in public. And so if you didn't go to these public festivals celebrating the gods, you were a bad Greek. Now the Jews would stay home. Often they wouldn't go to these public ritual celebrations. And so they were accused of not being good citizens. Um, and I use that word loosely because the question of who was a citizen is also very much debated. But so these questions about what the status of the Jew is, are they full citizens, uh, even if they're clinging to their ancestral laws, is something that Philo is very sensitive to. And he's arguing that even Jews who observe their ancestral laws can make uh, the best of citizens. They can be the most loyal to what he calls the fatherland uh, versus the motherland, which was Judea. Now, you've uh, in, in this in this book, you have dealt with places and collections and the history of this time period. What was it as you researched for this book and as you've taught on these themes um, that that you found most surprising? You know, I think that we, or at least I, again, as an Orthodox Jew who was brought up thinking about this as sort of, you know, not a worthy period, um, I was brought up to think of these binaries. If you were in Judea, you practiced authentic Judaism. And authentic Judaism was a geographic identity. It was a linguistic identity. In other words, if you spoke Hebrew or Aramaic and you lived near the temple, then you had access to a kind of a training um, or exposure to teaching that would enable your authentic practice of Judaism. Whereas if you were living in what's called the diaspora, you were practicing a corrupted form of Judaism. And it was corrupted because of its high levels of exposure to Greek and Roman um life. Uh, again, I, I don't like using the word religion in the ancient world, but religious life. This binary, it's a, again, it's a false binary. There were Jews all over the world who were practicing common Judaism and yet doing so in ways that were very um, sort of courageously playful. Um, and so the parameters with which you could play with your own tradition, I think, was actually much wider than it might be today. And these Jews view themselves to be, um, you know, bearers of uh, an authentic tradition 
and also wrote their works confidently and proudly and openly. They weren't hiding. Uh, they weren't hiding from their Judean kin who were, might have been saying, you know, you have to turn to us for authority or religious authority. And they weren't hiding from their political host culture who were also criticizing them. So I'm intrigued by these diasporan Jews who are getting it from both sides, who are treated as outsiders to both traditions, their Judean uh, kin treating them as outsiders to their authentic tradition and their host empire also likewise. Uh, but it's the pride and the um, sort of sense of ownership that you see in these diasporan texts that I think are just such a delight. And every time I look at them, I, I, I'm delighted anew. <laughs> and, um, after our listeners read your book, Discovering Second Temple Literature, and you've mentioned that you love the pseudepigraphic collection. What's one book from that that you would recommend listeners go out and read? My favorite novella, my favorite text that's preserved in the pseudepigrapha is The Testament of Abraham. And the reason why I love The Testament of Abraham is because it's funny. And it's the kind of funny that you could read in 2022 and be like, oh, this is really funny. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's always an interesting thing. Like what would make someone laugh 2000 years ago, 2,500 years ago? This might, this might make you laugh. So the Testament of Abraham plays on stereotypes that were circulating about Abraham, that he was serene and obedient and docile and sublime and listened to everything you know, that God told him to do. And you see in later early rabbinic and early Christian stories about Abraham, this really serious portrayal of Abraham that he's just sort of like contemplating philosophically and then just like monotheism just occurs to him. And, and everything about Abraham is so like surreal, like, wow, yeah, I get it. Just, there it is. Um, and so the Testament of Abraham undermines a very well-known genre of literature, uh, a very popular genre, and this is the Testament genre. In the late Second Temple period, Jews start to write texts uh, that ask the question, what would a patriarch or a matriarch have said on their deathbed? And the Testament genre is a very serious uh, genre. And so you have these speeches that Jews in the first century wrote and their deathbed speeches where the patriarch gathers his children and grandchildren by his bedside and says, love your neighbor as yourself and never deal and always fear God and read the scriptures 47 times a day. I just made that up, but like really serene. And the Testament, whoever wrote the Testament of Abraham was like, this is really boring. Like I need something more. And so they borrow from Hellenistic storytelling uh, and they create a non-Testament, which is basically Abraham running away. The whole story is about him running away from the archangel Michael, who's been sent to bring him into paradise. Archangel Michael is sent to kill Abraham. And the whole time Abraham is just like, oh my God, there he's back. He's in my living room. What the heck? Now he's just in my kitchen. Like I got to get away from this clown. And he makes up excuses. I'm so sorry, Michael. I got to go to the bathroom and just, I'll be back in five minutes. I swear. And he's like hightailing it out the backyard. Um, and every time Michael's like, Oh my God, Abraham is making me crazy. And he goes back to God and he's like, I cannot deal with him. And over and over, Michael is this very famously in second temple literature, this intermediary between the people and God. And God's like, you know what, Michael, you, you, you stink at this. You don't know what you're doing. You're a totally incompetent angel. And so at the end of the story, God has to send the angel of death who tricks Abraham um, into dying. And, you know, the whole time Abraham is cowardly. He's petty. He's highly mortal. He's super stressed out and anxious. Uh, and Michael is just like wandering around, like flailing his arms, like, what do I do? 
Um, and it's just, it's very, again, it's a playful text. It has Hellenistic stylistics that would have been familiar to, uh, a Greek speaking Jew at this time, but it also draws from stories that were scriptural and highly, uh, revered. And so it's, it's an, it's an irreverent text that makes me laugh and I highly recommend it. Well, that was worth the price of admission. Thank you for that description. And I want to say thank you so much for your book. Discovering Second Temple Literature, and I want to encourage readers to, or listeners to go out and read that book. Uh, so, Maka, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with OnScript. It was really my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.